0: I'm Julia Gerlock. Welcome to this episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast series, supported by Sound Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Thanks again to Sound Agriculture for their support of this podcast series. Forget bulky nutrients and finicky biologicals. Wake up your soil and unlock more corn per acre with Source by Sound Agriculture. Source is a revolutionary chemistry approach that works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use. It's like caffeine for microbes. With less than an ounce of application per acre, you can give those microbes a boost, sit back, and let them work their magic. Go to sound.ag and learn more. John Stevens no-tills and strip-tills about 700 acres in Rock Creek, Minnesota, moving from years of conventional tillage practices to no-till and strip-till starting in 2013. Stevens embraces a systematic approach to building soil health while understanding that farm profitability isn't necessarily dependent upon having the highest yields. For this episode of the Strip-Till Farmer podcast, Stevens talks about how integrating strip-till is helping him build organic matter and boost production on clay soils with relatively low county yield averages. He'll also share how he's using cover crops and cattle in his operation. So, John, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So, John, I love it if you would just give us a little bit of background about yourself and your operation, help us understand what got you into strip tilling and when and why and all of that.
1: So, I'm I'm fifth generation, starting over, and so that's kind of weird for a lot of people to understand, but a lot of people, some farmers don't understand that, but some do. The, the 80s were a tough time up here, uh, and so if I wanted to be a farmer, I had to Buy farmland. And, and so I just told Dad one day, I'm like, well, we're gonna buy some land and you're retiring from the land. I'll take over and you can help me now. We'll flip-flop rolls. And so we did. And then we worked a long time to start to rebuild the old farmyard and stuff. We were always conventional till. We had the small dairy, you know, grew up small dairy. Dad was an extremely intelligent herdsman. My uncle had 20 years in abs genetics and so dad had a really nice herd and he could he could tell them cattle you know what i mean he he could handle them cows but our practice then our soils you know are from a half a percent to three percent organic matter but our three percent organic matter soil still only have a CEC of nine and ten which is very weird because that loamy clay soil there's enough clay in it that it's a very binding uh, if you wanted to pour some concrete, you get rid of your soil, you come take some of our topsoil off, you water it and run a smooth drum on it, and you have a beautiful base to build a road on. It <laughs> compacts wonderful. It sheds water like a duck's back. And so so but but our normal practice was you moldboard it in the fall and and then in the spring you hit it. A couple times with the disc and then if it rained it disked it again to warm and dry it back up and my whole life growing up i'm like yeah i'm, I'm just going to run this farm this is what i'm going to do well reality says it's not quite that easy so we worked off the farm as our, our source to to rebuild the farm and time and labor became as we were starting to grow when you have a hundred acres, it's one thing. You come home pretty easy to whip that out. But as we've got more and more, and you know now you're five, 600 acres. And so we needed to figure something out to be more efficient. Because I remember one year, 2012, I think it was, uh, well, 2009, 10 and 11, I lived out of the state. So, so that really made farming interesting. I'll say in 2012 I remember I took some time off of work and spent the whole time off of work doing tillage and didn't get much planting done and I I, I thought well that was dumb that was really unproductive because at the time you're like wow I got all that done but at the same time you are thinking, I now have to go back to work and I still haven't put a seed in the ground
0: mm-hmm.
1: so it, it it was things were starting to click not quite, because I still live in I live in Minnesota, the capital state of it. Don't work here, and I'm the capital city of the state of it. Don't work here. You know my territory is no till, no yield. It don't work here. Is our motto. I mean, I, some of the some of the neighbors have flags that just like we're too cold, we're too what, we're too far north. They got shirts printed up. It don't work here, club. It's a, and so. Yeah. There's a lot of finger pointed and what, what's, what's Skip's boy doing now? You know, a lot of that kind of stuff at the coffee shop, like, uh, we planted green the other year for the first time. And, and there was a whole lot of talk at the coffee shop, like what what's that boy you're doing now? He's out there with the planter, but he didn't plant anything. Right. Because there's still a crop out there And as like, yeah, he planted it. And they're all worried. They weren't like judging, like that boy's an idiot. What'd you do wrong? They're all just like, Hey, how's that going to work? And dad's like, I don't know. Let them, let them try it. Let them see how it works out. And, and it, it, some of them worked and some of them didn't work. So then in 2013, out of curiosity, I was just like, well, what would happen? Cause you're out there doing primary tillage on soybean residue, which is like 10% coverage of our soil. You know, there, it's not like soybean residue is holding back. And I'm, I'm just kind of like, wait a minute. I got a smooth field. I'm spending all this time, energy, and money to make it rough, to make it smooth again, plant it. I thought, well, what if I just, so I told dad, I said, you know what? Let's just plant half the field, no till, and the other half, we'll, we'll do no, no normal conventional. And it turns out the same. You know, the first year, nothing had changed in the soil yet, and, and so, there, there, was no with the yield monitor. There's zero difference. You, if you closed your eyes, you didn't know if you're on one or the other. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. So in 2014, came around and worst spring in history, and locally, you know, in a, in recent history for just wet, cold, mm-hmm. uh, it's just a mess. So we ended up no chilling, just to get the crop in. And the crop made average the corn made average and it was the first year our soybeans ever that was the best soybean year we ever had oh interesting today yeah <laughs> and and i was still believing everything i'm told by the conventional modern day farmer people your agronomist your your seed sales people because they're like oh well, your ground's so light your ground's so much different than our ground i'm like my ground is so different than my ground in the same field and your ground is the exact same way. Our fields are the same in the fact that they're just highly variable. So, but at the time you're still pretty conventional and you're just like, yeah, my ground is really light. And so I just believed all that stuff. And 2015 came and one of the neighbors, they had been dealing with strip till for a couple years. And they're like, yeah, this is really cool. And I wonder, so I built the first, you know, 1.0 version of strip till is an old sook up row crop cultivator kind of a heavy unit not quite heavy enough for strip till uh had we only needed to go down a couple inches to literally just make a berm it would have worked great but i wanted to get deep into our profile because of how our soil acts our 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 conventional till soil our unhealthy soil it, it like we said it, it compact so on a conventional kill field, that first driving rain behind the planter, now the guys are out there with rotary harrows to bust that crust. And in in July, August, you go with a tile probe and you you can find that top. In that top four inches, you've got a couple-inch crust on mm-hmm. So I wanted to, to get below that and kind of shatter that up. And the cool thing is I did not realize that it would take the whole season for that strip till slot to really heal. So the whole season, that slot stayed very mellow. Water and air could get in there. If you got a heavy rain, it got away from that seedling really quick. If it turned a little dry, it actually kind of wicked moisture from in between the strips. You know, moisture is going to move where it's dry. And then some, the, the fertility came along. So in 15, uh, we built the 1.0 version and we had a cart on there and we just cut King K in half and sulfur in half, right? Day one, no questions asked, like we're just doing this. University of Minnesota had some trials already. And so we just kind of looked at their trials and then, you know, basic math. We're just looking at basic math of broadcasting and, and the co-ops used to have charts or if you had the dry on the plant or versus broadcasting, they used to have different rates for that. And so we're just like, okay, clearly people understand banding versus broadcasting. and just basic math of pounds per nutrients in the root zone. Um, and so we just cut it in half. Uh, the sulfur responded extremely well. I, I was prepared to come back with another dose of sulfur like we normally would do in conventional till, Because we didn't have to. We're like, wow, that, that really worked so 2015 was probably one of the better years we ever had in history and you could see we had some conventional till we had a lot of no-till and we had a little bit of strip till and you could see the strip till compared to the other two like oh my gosh why did you two even show up uh that that strip till he had a gun yeah it, it was even it was even a contest. It was like a foot race at NASCAR. <laughs> it, it just everybody else was just on on foot, and you know, it was magnificent. I mean, even in late June, it was already several vegetative growth stages ahead. It it left that ground running, and and it never looked back.
0: Did you get all of those planted basically at the same time and everything everything else was the yeah
1: same? yep yep for the most part everything's within several days
0: uh-huh.
1: we don't have because of our location once the frost goes out and, and most years you're not even waiting for the frost to be completely out of the soil you got to get gold and so we have a really short time frame up front
0: we didn't talk about this before, I don't think, but we should probably give your location a little bit of context, because we said Minnesota, but you're actually north of Minneapolis. You're between Minneapolis and Duluth, approximately.
1: Yep, yep, yep. We're, we're 70-ish, we around 70 miles north of the Twin Cities. Uh, on Google Earth, if you look at the maps, we're 11 miles south of where row crops pretty much end. <laughs> to the east, we're, worst, we're the last fields to the east, and then it runs into the old St. Croix watershed. And you got to go twenty miles, you know, cross. It's twelve miles to the Saint Croix River, and uh, then you got to get into Wisconsin before you get back to some some farmland. Okay. You get into that old river base and, yep. and ground, and uh, so yeah, everything's in fairly close. But I mean, you could see it. It's like, oh my gosh! And all summer long, that strip till ground it, it it took all the variability out of the field. And I, I, I did not expect that. I wasn't going into it, thinking that or anything. That was just a nice surprise. Like, wow, look at the, the no-pill conventional till that wet spot or dry spot or that hillside or whatever is still up and down like normal, like my whole life. Like, yep, that's going to be a yellow spot if it's wet this year. And that's going to be a brown spot if it's dry this year. And so the, one of the greatest ones was on, on uh, field number three. Was there's a sand knob. And so our normal profile is nine inches of this sandy loam on top of many, many feet of yellow clay. And then there's a spot like God was going to put a fence post there. Like they augered, you know, like this 90-foot diameter auger, just punched a hole through the crust, and it's just sand. Turn turn the garden hose on and and never make a puddle kind of sand. So that spot with conventional till and no-till, that spot usually ran 30, 40% of the field average. So on soybeans, a lot of years it was zero to 15 or 20, you know, unless it was a really wet year. And same with corn, it was a, you know, 50, 60 bushel spot in corn. And we stripped through that and the rest of the field was like 150, 160, and that spot was 120 or something like that. I mean, it was it was right there. In fact, that spot did better the first year we strip-tilled than uh, in 2013, when it was still conventional corn, mm-hmm. the rest of the field. That, that poor spot did better than 2013, the normal spots in the field. And we're just like, holy crap, we're, we are onto something here yet not everybody's field is going to respond like ours uh i talked to farmers that are doing strip till you know in the beautiful soils down in illinois and indiana and they don't even run fertilizer on their strip tills because they're like "Soil's so rich we just throw a little bit of this or that out there later in the season we've got a crop and it's just like oh my gosh well, that's how the other half lives <laughs> but it uh so it's pretty cool to learn that so so not everybody's soil is going to be like that but for us it's just like ever in my opinion and and so 2016 come around we're like we're strip tilling everything so we did we we stripped till everything and that pretty much destroyed the version 1.0 and so then i found an old hinnaker um econo till where it had the chisel plow shanks And so that was a heavy beast of a row crop cultivator. So all I did was flip the depth wheels upside down, took the berming discs off the DMI disc gripper, welded up some brackets to hold them in the back, and uh, welded a a tube to put a row cleaner in it. And boom, we had a strip till, 500 bucks. 500 bucks, we had a six row strip till. Nice. And we knew that sucker was not getting beat up by rock. You could feel it in the tractor. When that thing hit a rock, you, you're you pulling a chisel plow. And so with the old timers and the landlords, you you tread lightly because you don't want to tell them that you're doing some kook fringe wacko thing. If you want to win, because I already, I already kind of learned that because when you go to the other neighbors, yeah, I'm going to strip till this year. They're like, oh, yeah, we're so sorry to hear that. You know, we heard of a guy that tried it one time and it didn't work. So with, with the new landlords at the time, I kind of treaded lightly. And they're like, well, what? what's that rig you're pulling around? I said, oh, that's the chisel plow that happens to have my dry fertilizer program from the planter is in the cart. And it's the same chisel plow shank that you'd normally have on a chisel plow, but instead of just blowing the dirt out and leaving this open trench like you would for tillage, I just spun the discs around, pull the dirt in. so I have something to plant on? I said, so that's my, I fertilizer program like you guys used to do, so I don't have to stop the planter. So the planter can just plant on them nice strips that are, are chisel plowed, fertilized, and finished all in one pass. And I can run a lot less fertilizer through there. They're like, well, God dang, that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. And then they talk to each other, you know. Yeah, Jerry, you remember how horrible every five acres you had to stop and refill that dry box on the planter? Yeah, boy, yeah, well, good luck, you know. And, and it worked beautiful and, and, but then, uh, 19 and 20, 18, 19 and 20 come around and because of just off farm workloads and, and other things in life, we just did not have time to really be running the strip till cart that much. We just, we just no-tilled for them a few years. Now, after doing several years of the no-till, I got some fields that, like, yeah, no-till is fantastic. I got a couple other fields that, while we're transitioning and improving the soil health on them, they're like, you know, you need to bring strip till back, to us, John. We're we're, we're kind of suffering here,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and on the rental side of things, you know, farmers always, you know, there's always that risk we're going to lose some ground. <sighs> so on the rental side, I can you can run a very minimal program. You're not trying to build soil. Uh, you have to, depending on where you're putting the fertilizer, you have to change your soil testing to make sure you're capped at depth, but on the rental side, you can go in and run a very minimal program to feed this year's crop. And if, if this fall, if that land gets taken away from you, great, you're out. Nothing. You spent zero energy tilling it and the fertilizer you put out, you got back.
0: Sure. Mm-hmm.
1: And so, yeah.
0: Yeah. So what is your, uh, um, ratio of owned to rented land?
1: Oh, vastly rented. Okay. Yeah. We only own, so we only were able to buy, we bought an 80 from mom and dad. And then across the road, um, we have a, a pretty sharp farmer down there and he sold a big fields of, when I was a little kid in kindergarten, I used to stand by the road and is when the, that farmer's cousins owned the field, they had the first eighty six thirty John Deere in the area, big articulated, and uh, so I used to stand in the road waiting for them to get to the headland so I could ride with them before the school bus got to me. And so I'd ride with them in the mornings, um, and and so I had been on that field for many years, just daydreaming like someday. So he sold it to some developers. They ended up going bankrupt and so they paid a big dollar price and then uh we bought it pretty cheap
0: yeah. we
1: added we net added another uh 60 to the farm and it ended up being a yeah yep yep 60 to the farm and so it touches one of our other fields so we with a little bit of work now we'd have a nice 80 we turn a 20 into an 80 mm-hmm. that was a nice ad uh everything else has just been uh some some really nice older guys that think I'm a good kid. It's funny, like you get them old cattle guys and hay guys, they know what they can make. They know what they can do on that land. So if you come in offering them a low dollar cash rent, trying to do row crops, they're just like, no, I'm only 75. I can still get three quarters of the way stood up straight. I got plenty of time. I can still farm this myself if that's your best offer. Mm-hmm and so a few of them came to me and said well um here's what you have to pay you're like well oh, crap <laughs> that's a big number but they're they are some of the only really big fields in the area and so it's kind of nice to you're not com- i have not gotten any land by competing with other farmers um kind of a little off topic here but but that's kind of a fun thing when, when landlords come to you and they're like, hey, we've got this 120-acre field. Um, so the 120-acre field to us, it, it's still seven fields within that same square of swamps and ditches. And so the 120-acre field is still a, a two-and-a-half acre, a, a 19, an 8, a 20, uh, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah.
1: And, and is there
0: that, a certain amount that it doesn't produce anything? I mean, correct
1: correct right. you got ditches and draws and and swamp holes and uh-huh. tree lines but still i mean it's a beautiful beautiful piece of ground and and so yeah it was kind of fun that that they all came so yeah out of that 100 out of uh, we're at 760 now and we own 140 or 130 or to the point now that i don't know how much we want to chase because with the strip till and the no-till and the soil health practices and, and bringing the cattle, bringing beef back in the operation. And and I'm kind of turning into a North Dakota. I really like North Dakota. I lived out there for a couple of years in college, uh, a couple of years up on the Drayton bridge, and then a year out in the oil field. And I, I, I really enjoy North Dakota. And we're very similar here with our challenges of, of soil and climate. Granted, we, you know, we, 10 times more moisture than they do. There's a lot of similar challenges and the things that work out there, I can make work here. You just adapt it a little bit, you know, you, you make it fit your area. So we're becoming very diverse and that helps me just run minimal equipment for, for the acres and, and the cattle are, are, are becoming a really Cool deal. So this year, if it wasn't for the drought, I think the experiment would have worked. I tried to strip till. I think if I had a better strip till rig, it would help as well. Someday we're we're gonna have a professional rig. Um, but the cool part with the strip till is is with the cover crops. Is if we can go into the green cover crop as a living mulch, strip into it. That gives us our, our corn or wheat, whatever we're doing. The cereal crop, the the that kind of buffer. So the alfalfa clover grasses will take time for them to come back, and so between maybe taking the first cutting, maybe a little bit of a herbicide application on the strip till rig. Um, so you're just herbicide banding, like you're banding fertilizer. So you're just herbiciding the strip itself to protect the strip to protect the cash crop. You bring in your annual animal unit monthly credits and grazing and stuff. I could strip till corn into alfalfa. And let's say all my neighbors were 170 bushel corn, our 120 bushel corn, because your equipment costs, labor costs, all that stuff, strip till to conventional till is way down. Fertility inputs are almost zero compared to conventional. That, that little bit of difference in corn, you leave it on $5 corn and then bring in grazing credits on the backside. Oh, I'll out cash flow that every day of the week. I'll take that 120 bushel, 140 bushel. I'll take that 20, 20 to 40 bushel hit every day of the week. But the crazy thing is, is on most of these trials, I haven't had the hit. Ooh. In 2018, we had we went in super aggressive with covers into corn, and by fall time, you're like, you know, during the summer, you're like, oh, I might have not needed to do that, like, because I mean, you, you, the corn was just barely getting up to chest high, and you already had some a a good thick mat of of spindly oat grass coming. You got a lot of brassicas. You had vetch already starting to climb the corn plants. You're like, oh. And a, and a thick layer of fuzz of, of annual ryegrass coming down there, like turf. And it was a phenomenal crop. Phenomenal. And it was hilarious to see behind the combine you had these big, massive radish leaves. They didn't make the big radish like you see people hold up by the two liter, but they had such a vegetative growth. It was like a carrot. Radish, but I mean, you had these leaves that were a foot half long, just just these massive leaves that oh, came way up, and so behind the combine, you just had this thick, dense, beautiful green mat, and uh, just like yeah, and then the monitor was better than ever. Like, how does that even work? Like. I, I'm still questioning a lot of this myself <laughs> and i remember we had stripped till the field and uh a few neighbors were over and they're just like this how did it turn out you, you told them and they're like well, how does it work you know that they're they're just like that that looked really beautiful from the road we, we believe you but how is this working like like what's going on that this is working for you and you're like i don't know i'm not a soil scientist i'm just some dumb farmer that just like wanted to save my money
0: what sort of seeding rate did you use on that cover crop do you remember
1: for the pounds of the cover crop itself 40 uh 40 or usually about 40 pounds of oats and then just a couple pounds uh, on the radish is it two or three pounds of radish uh two or three pounds of veg um, five or six pounds of annual ryegrass, uh, just a pound or two of buckwheat. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you throw anything else out there, uh, annual clovers because all of them it seems like you know, for because I just broadcast the covers, okay. What I don't have time to do an intercropper seeder to go up and down my field at 12 rows, and it just I would lay awake and cry at night if I ran down my headland turning around every. 12 rows with an inner seeder. Ugh, I just, I, I just, I'd try. I'd have to do my headlands to an alfalfa or a cereal crop or a crop. Um, and, and so for time and cost of equipment, just bought a 500 pound capacity, three-point spinner spreader.
0: When did you get those cover crops seeded? Then that,
1: uh, that was, uh, that would have been late June.
0: Okay.
1: That corn was boot high, mm-hmm. B3, had, you know, it, it was still fairly small yet because mm-hmm. we had spent several years going into corn right before canopy where you could just sneak through with the tractor without snapping it. And, and them cover crops would really not do a whole lot. We're like, okay. So then that year, I'm just like, I'm going to get this to work one way or the other. So I just went out there super early that corn just barely boot high and spread it. And I thought, well, worst case scenario, if it takes off well in a month, we'll have canopy. And, uh, or less than a month, we'll have canopy. So you're just kind of like, okay, the corn is here, you know, a foot and a half high. If I spread that seed and it takes two weeks for that seed to germinate and start actually growing a little plant, in two weeks, that corn's already moved another six, eight inches, you know, and height, two weeks after that, you're already waist high on that. I mean, that corn is off and running. There, there, there's nothing we could, you know, looking back, now you realize that there's nothing I can spread in that field for a cover crop that's gonna hurt that corn crop. Once that corn is established, at this point, I'd have no fear spreading a cover crop at B2 or B3, no fear whatsoever. Uh-huh. Uh, Cause in our climate, there is no, spreading cover crops later in August. You're not going to have any rain to get anything germinated September. It's going to be too cold to get anything done. You Get it out in June, get some growth, the corn canopies. Some of the stuff kind of lays there. Some of the stuff disappears, mm-hmm. um, but like the oats, they just kind of get wispy, you know, thin and they just keep getting tall, but super thin. And, uh, and, and the radish just don't care the radish and the buckwheat they're just like hey we're living life we're going and annual rye grass yeah the rye grass just goes um so so yeah looking back i but in the soybeans that it, it i got super aggressive at the same time and like you know we never get anything done behind soybeans i'm like with this. so i went out into early soybeans with with the same oats and vetch and stuff oh boy oh boy come harvest time you had the vetch Climb and then vining along the top, which vetch went through the combine really well. Vetch shreds and tears easy. Um, There's parts of the country that annual ryegrass and hairy vetch are a noxious weed to them guys. We have winter. A couple weeks of 20 and 30 below is a normal winter. To see a a 40 below or a little bit colder one or two nights a year is not uncommon. There's a lot of species that aren't handling just that. Hard frost, you know, feet. You know, when the grave diggers are like, Yeah, frost at six feet, you're like, Oh, yeah, okay, it's that time of year. Um, so that takes care of a lot of the noxious for us so of carryover. Mm-hmm. But the oats in the soybeans gave me a very thick, dense mat about eight inches tall. The problem is, the oats can handle the frost pretty well. Your first two or three frosts on the soybeans, the oats are still green because you're only hitting, you know, 27, 28 degrees. And then you get them dewy mornings. So the oat grass is just wet inside. You know, when you walk through, your boots are wet instantly. So that means all them pods at the bottom of the plant are wet. You're like, oh. So the first time you went out to combine it, all that oat grass kind of wove into itself and just kind of a nappy mess drags on the guards of the head. It doesn't even get to the sickle, it just drags on the guard of the head. And then it starts dragging more of it and pretty dragging corn residue. And all of a sudden, you, you know, you're scanning your head, all of a sudden you see a big ball and you're like, ah. And so we just had to wait, just had to wait for a super dry evening and then just wipe that field out quick. So then I'm like, okay, beans, beans, just when the, when the beans are yellowing down, Go out with some winter rye in a broadcaster and then at your cover crop. There you go. That for us, there you go. Then the next spring, you got that winter rye, winter wheat, triticale are great winter things. Then the next spring you have options. Do you do you terminate it for beans? Do you keep it alive for relay with beans? Do you cut it for a first cutting hay and then burn it down for corn and beans? Do you cut it for hay and drill more hay into it what are the markets doing what do you need on the farm you know do you burn it down and put peas barley whatever it, it we're we're already up and running on the next spring just be adapt like bruce lee you know
0: we'll get back to john stevens in a moment but i'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor sound agriculture for supporting our strip till farmer podcast series Forget bulky nutrients and finicky biologicals. Wake up your soil and unlock more corn per acre with SOURCE by Sound Agriculture. SOURCE is a revolutionary chemistry approach that works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use. It's like caffeine for microbes. With less than an ounce of application per acre, you can give those microbes a boost, sit back and let them work their magic. Go to sound.ag and learn more. Let's get back to the program now as John talks about grazing cows on covers. So can you go back to your, the corn with the cover crops? I just want to kind of work through that entire process. So you're, you had the corn in, you planted the cover crops. um, And then when did you harvest? Um, And then Then what, you brought your your cattle in to um, graze the cover crop after that?
1: Uh, so harvest would have been the normal November sometime. We did not bring the cows in at the time because we had no pastures established at that time. So at that time, the cows, we had just bought the the little herd that we're starting fresh with. And uh, so they were on the the old steer units back at the farmyard. had I known how easy they could be, um, I, I would have put a hot wire around it and just put a water tub out there and just let them have at it. That thing would have – they would have been days off of feed for two months out there before the snow. It depends on the snow, but you could always just go out there with the plow and just move it off. You know, you make one pass up a field, they'd, they'd graze for several days in that one pass. Um and so we're, we're, we're learning and, uh, cause with, this, with the dairy cows, you know, growing up with dairy, you handle the cattle so much different on a small dairy farm. And so you, you still have them memories of like, Bessie is great. Open her stanch and she goes to the feed bunk outside at four o'clock, you open the back door, they come back in for milking. Anything changes from that and Bessie is gone. They have breaks during the day. They run out the front door, and now it's just, you know, the Benny Hill soundtrack while you're trying to get them back in. And so with the beef cows, the last thing I wanted to do was just open the gate and be like, there you go, girls. But I did that behind the 60-inch corn. We opened up the gate and just said, there you go, girls. We just took a, we just took a single hot wire, poly wire, and just made a horseshoe off the opening of the pasture, I looped out into the cornfield and back to the pasture just to see what kind of grazing behind the 60-inch corn with this massive cover. crop. And there was a hay crop and a half inside that 60-inch corn. And there was a little bit of snow on there, Some a lot of that brass, you know, it's brown because it's been froze several times. But underneath was still a lot of green. Them cows, you open the gate and they're kind of not trusting like what you know y'all almost had to bait them to get them out the gate
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and we, we literally had to take corn to get them to come out the gate for the first time as soon as they got outside the gate they just put their heads down and they were grazing they, they pulled their mouth they pulled their head up with some snow on their nose and their mouth just full of this big water dry hay green hands hay, and they're just living the calves are jumping all over because they're like we're free and they they did not care about the hot wire they were not really hot wire trained yet for that poly so they would skirt underneath it but they wouldn't get too far and then they realized like well, let's just eat then it got to the point so that was after the first day now on day so at night we'd bring them back in so nothing you know what i mean so day two you come out to the pasture now if you didn't want them into the corn stocks you had to beat them back from the gate Mm -hmm. because now it's how fast can i open the gate get the tractor in and shut the gate behind before they charge and they would charge that gate boom and and they would make it seven feet past the gate their butt is still within the gate and they're already just grazing Mm -hmm. and and so they're gosh that was so neat to see we're we're kind of learning this stuff because we didn't I didn't go into this like, I'm gonna be soil health. Mm-hmm. We went into this because we're like, hey, there's no money in conventional farming. We didn't even realize what was happening with soil health until like 17 or 18, 17 things started to click. Cause we have, you know, we could see with the strip till and the cover crops that erosion and things were happening. Erosion was being reduced. And we could see things were happening. But then in 17, things started to click. Like, hey, you know, we started to hear about some soil health. And like, well, that's what I'm doing, you know. And then pretty soon you see these five principles of soil health. And you're like, I'm already doing that. And we were trying, you know, I, so I was, when it come to the cover crops, I, was, I didn't know the local resources I had at the time. So I was just by myself trying to figure this out. Um, and the local NRCS had an equip program for cover crops. I'm like, that great. Let's do it, some easy money. Let's just do it, you know? And and then you're reading these guys down south doing cover cropping and come springtime, you know, you see them pictures with that rye six feet tall and just this big, thick green mat, they're, they're crimping it down and they're no-tilling or strip-tilling into it. And you're like, yeah, that's what I wanna do. The the difference is is uh, for us in the springtime planting, you're you got a one foot growth of winter rye. But at planting time, if it, if you got green four to six inches tall when you should be putting in your cash crops, that's a great spring. We had a warm spring, so it wasn't quite as glamorous on Twitter. Like planting green, and people are like, "That's your lawn." Like, no, really, that's our field. It. Uh, and and so yeah as the soil health started to click then you're like wait a minute now now we can and so they just started bringing all these systems together because everything's just a tool no-till strip till conventional till is how seed goes in the ground Mm -hmm. what you do during the season after that is the management to make it successful or not no-till we lose strip till and conventional till you turn the dirt up you get that flush of co2 you, you, you oxygenate the soil, you, you get a, a release of nutrients. On no-till, we don't get that. But on the no-till side, we really have to manage nitrogen. Different. We really have to push the inferral on the planter to help that little seedling up and running. Because in our soil, when we're planting, we, we can talk about soil life like, yeah, let's build a healthy soil. I, I, at this point, I'm still not convinced that when the soil is 40 degrees, soil life still isn't awake yet. I can have the healthiest soil in the world, but at forty degrees, I still need to supplement some nutrients because it's still going to be another two weeks or so before the soil life is alive and awake and really doing nutrient transfer and whatever it does. And and so, glad you did. But on the you know, so each thing is just the different management to make it success.
0: So, what sort of herbicide program are you following in general?
1: On the corn, we just do a pre merge now. Okay. It's a simple pre merge with burn down uh-huh. to clean the field up yep. and kind of hold back anything and then get out there with the cover crops. And between the cover crops and corn getting the canopy, not a worry. Huh. Uh, the thing that the other mind blowing experience was 60 inch corn. In the 60 inch corn, you had the cover crops just take off. And so at our farm show, we, we, we host a farm show every year at the farm here. And uh, just a great get together. You know, this year's the third year in a row. So even by year two, you can already see the same people coming back, and it's their visitation time, that time you know. How have you been over the last year, you know? And so that's awesome to see. But two years in a row, we had 60-inch corn. And they walk out there, and there you got buckwheat, and, and all, these, all these cover crop things are growing. And you get some foxtail, too, you know, and uh, a little bit of lamb's quarter. But lamb's quarter is vitamin A. The lamb's quarter does not slow them out. Cow- I love them lamb's quarter leaves. They'll lick that stem right clean. Mm-hmm. The same with pigweeds and water hemp. Them big, luscious leaves. Water hemp is not a noxious weed. There was no water hemp. There was just a, a couple scattered pieces of water hemp out there. And instead of having 60 people come back to the table saying, dude, that 60 inch corridor with all that sunlight and all this fear of noxious weeds and just a simple pre emerge herbicide program for the entire season, 60 people come back to the table like, wow, where's the water hemp? Where's all the the thistle and just the native dominant species? Where's all that? At? And you're like, I don't know. All I know is that cover crop is working really good, and and so that that just kind of blew your mind, like, wow. So then then you do have the confidence to say, water hemp is a powerful plant. It's a very cool plant. Lots of respect for it. Uh, as far as species go, the ability of that plant is awesome. I mean, the, the little bit of light that it needs, the, the, the window of germination that it has compared to other species, the fact that you can pull that stupid thing out of the ground, shake the roots clean, throw it on the ground, and if you get any bit of moisture, that one root touching the ground will just come back to life. <laughs> And keep that, that plant laying on the ground will start to gooseneck back up a month later and you got a Christmas tree with 20 million seeds on it and you're just like whoa you, but it's still not a noxious weed I love it it can't get out of control in a hay field um, I, I don't care about chemical resistance because we're, we're not in the soybeans is the only spot I'm using chemicals to control it right now but we did a comparison the other year between winter rye and a pre-emerge soybean program to the point of failure. We let it fail. Oh, that field looked like hell. But the cool part is the pre-emerge, so we plant. We had a, a spot of winter rye and no winter rye in a field. We planted soybeans into it. This The where there was no winter rye, we did the conventional, your normal pre-emerge, burn down, uh, with Roundup and InLight for the soybeans. The winter rye stuff, we did nothing. Just, just planted, and then just planted the field and let it go to failure. Where the pre-emerge you know, after 20 days, you should be doing your post-emerge. You know, a good, a good chemical program is pre-proactive, pre, uh, not reactive. Well, if you want to control these, these noxious weeds, you're, you're spraying by the calendar, or as soon as you see one sprout, you're you're out there doing it. You you can't let it get out and running. What was really cool is on the on the winterized side, when the normal chemical beans started having lots of weeds come up, lambs quarter, milkweed, pigweed, water ham, I mean foxtail. I mean, it was just the, the gamut, thistle. It was just coming. In the winter rye, you're like, well, there's maybe a little something there, maybe one little something there. But it was 99% more clean. By the time the winter rye failed, it was already after the the harvest interval of the winter rye. The winter rye had already been dead for several weeks. And uh, then you started to get some of the weeds coming through. But at that point, the soybean the, the, the chemical side, I mean, you had some soybeans in your wheat patch.
0: <laughs>
1: it, it just went berserkers and there was no cleaning it up. You know, then I then I tried to play rescue, like, okay, we see we see at what point of failure. You you can't rescue that the next year and clean it up. But it uh, yeah, the next year we just did winter eye again in that field.
0: So what are your ultimate goals? I mean, what what are you aiming for next?
1: to survive for the farm to be sustainable, not in a hippie, like let's, you know, go vegan sustainable, but just viable, sustainable, long-term through the ups and downs, financially sustainable. Um, The long-term goal is that we just keep growing the beef herd. We start growing more retail off the farm for direct to consumer, um, during the pandemic, I never heard any of my neighbors go to Walmart and complain that the corn and soybean aisles were empty. But there was a lot of complaints that the meat aisle was running low, fresh produce was running low, potatoes, carrots, peppers, all that stuff. And I know this sounds really weird, but as a farmer with soil, I can grow potatoes, carrots, onions, that kind of stuff and sell it to them. And now after this pandemic, what we've seen to the country, to the world is corporate egg can't feed us sustainably. They One little hiccup and look what happened. You have all your eggs in one basket, you, have, you know, conglomerates controlling this thing. Short story long, we, we just want to keep working at the farm and just kind of going down this path of craziness and and just diversity and bring you know and then we are so close that the ambiance we can bring you you can bring the people right to the farm with a retail little retail store right on the farm as they drive to and from the farm they're driving past the cattle on the pasture they're driving past the crops if they show up during harvest time or planting time they're, they're seeing the equipment running you think of the ambiance to them people, I don't know how, as long as Walmart has a meat section in it, that's my competition. My neighbor down the road. Isn't my competition. Walmart having a meat section. When you took a if you if you did an aerial photo of Walmart and in, in a 15 mile radius, there's enough livestock around to feed the people that Walmart should not have a meat counter. There's enough fresh meat on a hoof right now to feed all them people beef. But we as farmers are kind of failing on, on reaching out to that consumer in oh, my soapbox.
0: Thanks to John Stevens for this conversation about integrating strip till for soil health and profitability. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessenermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For John Stevens and our entire staff here at Strip Del Farmer, I'm Julia Gerlock. Thanks for tuning in.